So we've been practicing together now for pretty much a whole day. It might sometimes seem a little longer than that. It's elapsed since you arrived here and we first gathered you into this hall at about this time yesterday. Probably for many of you, a lot of things have happened. Maybe not. And uh, we've often spoken about how whatever happens really is okay. That uh, whether a lot of things have happened and it seems like it's been, you know, several weeks since you arrived or whether it seems like not too much at all and it's been gone in a flicker. And uh, it's almost like, well, no time at all. It's okay. It's hard for us, I think, to really get that sense of it's okay. But so much of this practice is founded in a deepening trust of the okayness of how things are. The okayness of how we are, how you are, how I am. Which is not to be confused with suggesting that there might not be room for development and growth and learning, which of course is certainly all of our potential equally. But that sense of beginning from a place of, yeah, it's okay. We're okay. There's something really helpful, something really powerful in that for us, in the development of loving kindness. In the sense of beginning from that that place of allowing, that place of honouring, in fact. And I was... Just reflecting as I was walking into the room, the sense of how for some people it's a little strange and understandably that we engage in various, you know, maybe even appearing bizarre rituals in a place like this where we put our hands together and lean forward and, you know, one might wonder what's going on. Or when I come to give a talk in the evening, I really like to really get down on my hands and knees effectively and put my head on the ground in the form of traditional bowing that's used in this in this lineage of uh, insight meditation and uh, sort of the, the early Buddhist forms. And for me it's something about connecting with a sense of appreciation, a sense of gratitude, a sense of recognizing actually a certain degree of good fortune that one has to have, for me, my own sense of having come into contact with spiritual teachings and the very particular teachings of the Buddha that I've found remarkably beneficial and transformative in my life and had the incredible privilege and honour really of being able to share and serve over what feels, I guess, is really the larger part of my adult life now. So that sense of okayness, that really just allowing things to be as they are, to me seems to be a foundation for finding that deeper appreciation, that deeper resonance with life, with ourselves and with what is around us that nourishes us, that touches us, that supports us to find our own way into a deeper connection with that which is most precious that which is most true. 
And this practice of loving-kindness meditation is a pathway in that regard, something that supports us, guides us and enables us to become more and more in contact with, consciously connected with, something precious, something powerful, something beautiful that is within us and yet which all too easily becomes obscured or we in some way lose touch with it. This quality of caring, rather simple, rather ordinary, not somehow out of the realm of ordinary human experience. We know what this is and knew well about it before we ever involved, became involved in spiritual practice. We recognize it when we see it shared between people or creatures. That sense of care, of friendliness, of warmth. And it's something pretty well universally recognized as wholesome, as beneficial, as worthy of supporting and cultivating. And yet we don't necessarily know or we aren't necessarily taught how to bring that about. And it's easy to be quite hard on ourselves at times for our limitations in that regard. And so again, in this, it's really important, beginning with that sense of just however it's happening for you, it's okay. And we've, Kirsten and I both probably said that many times already today. And we could probably say it many times more and it wouldn't be too many times because it seems for all of us we're quite capable of forgetting that despite the fact that we've heard it and recognise its truth. What we tend to do is focus and highlight aspects of our experience, focus on and tune into aspects of our experience that are most often for us habitually to do in the habitual way we do that, to do with what is problematic and difficult. And one of the radical elements of this practice is rather than trying to focus in on or fix that which is problematic or difficult or sort of complain about it, which is what we more often tend to do in our sort of more ordinary habitual minds, rather than trying to fix it or complain about it, we might when it arises, open to it, but we're actually being invited to open our attention to include the aspects of our experience which are not necessarily problematic or limited or constrained. The Buddha, when he spoke about the practice of loving-kindness, the cultivation of this quality of caring, of heartfulness, of of a, of a gentle and tender sort of sensitivity in which we resonate with others and with ourselves in a, in a way that's concerned and caring for the welfare and wishing to support and advance the well-being of that person, ourself, others, or in fact all beings in whom we are contact, in contact with. That, that, that quality, that possibility that we're invited and encouraged and supported here to develop, to practice. The Buddha understood 
that it arises when we are aware of that or in contact with that which we appreciate in whoever it is that we might be turning our attention to. And it's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes it's not easy for us to turn towards that which we appreciate. We think that that's what we want, all those things we'd like to appreciate, for instance, in ourselves. And yet, you know, I imagine it would be quite easy for most of us to make a list of ten things that could really do with improving or fixing about me. I mean, not me. Well, maybe you could, but about (laughs) ourselves, you know. I could do it for me. Maybe you could. Um, But for ourselves, you know, and, and we wouldn't actually probably have too much difficulty with even sharing them. But, I mean, I don't know if that seems true to you, but I think it's probably true, without, you know, to share them with others. But imagine if we had to make a list of ten things that were really wonderful about ourselves. That would be hard work, wouldn't it? Ten things that were really wonderful. Not because they're not there, because somehow there's a prohibition on doing it, isn't there? Don't get big-headed, don't make too much of yourself, you know. Remember your limitations, all of that. Now, making the list would be one thing. Imagine reading it out, saying these are the ten things that are really one, or ten of the things, there's more than ten, that are really, you know, the first ten that came to mind, really wonderful things about me. Imagine doing that. What would that be like? Not out of a sense of trying to say I'm better than somebody else, because everybody else is going to have ten things as well, at least. But because there's something about the way in which that might orient us to relate to ourselves, This quality of appreciation arises by the way we give attention. When we attend to the problems and the difficulties and the faults and the shortcomings of ourself or another, of our life or someone else's, it's easy to feel a sense of contraction, a sense of disconnection, even despair. When we, as a practice, acknowledge the goodness, the wholesomeness, even of our simple intention to come here and our engagement in the practice as we've been inviting and encouraging you to do, just to appreciate that you're doing this without trying to measure whether you're doing it good or not or bad or not or succeeding. or That's all sort of conceptual stuff. Just the intention in itself is wholesome and beautiful to honour that. It can start to shift how we, how we respond, how we feel. Not in terms of just an emotional feeling, but the sense of the tone or the the resonance with which we hold or with which we meet ourselves. So this the sense of noticing that which we appreciate. This is the proximate cause or that which most directly supports and gives rise to the quality of loving kindness, of friendliness of this, this caring that we're, that we're exploring and developing together. And this word I find really interesting, appreciation, noticing what we appreciate, appreciation. That sense of turning to the positive. Bearing in mind that it's not that we somehow disregard the places of our limitation or our reactivity or confusion, but that... For most of us, it's easy to get out of balance by focusing only on the negative. And so there's a coming back into balance, a finding of the middle way, the place of balance, which is really the, 
the marker of this path and the, the, the description the Buddha used to describe it, the middle way, the path between extremes. And so often it's like bringing ourselves back into balance to honour the wholesome. Mostly we don't do that because we take it for granted. And we think the problems are the things we've got to work on. But actually no. We need to equally give attention to that which is precious and beautiful in ourselves. Just as we would notice ourselves naturally doing that with regard to someone we cared for. So this word appreciation, coming back to the sense of what it means, it in English has a lot of different ways it's used and meanings which I find very informative and helpful in this in this context to reflect on because appreciation can be used to mean a quality of gratitude when we appreciate that someone has done something for us. It's a sense of we're grateful for it. It's like thank you. And there's a sense of, of gratitude in that quality of appreciation. Just as when we notice the wholesome in somebody or in ourselves, the good things, we can be grateful that that's there and that that, that touches us. Again, that's something that opens our heart. sense of gratitude is really important in this practice. And it comes from attending to that which we have received or benefited from, been touched by. Appreciation as a word also, or to appreciate, also means to value. When we appreciate something, it means we give it value. We recognize it has value. And there's something in this process about when we see the value in something, when we recognize that, again, that quality of value, it actually opens our heart. It's again similar to gratitude, but a little different. A sense of seeing the value in something. Ah, yeah. Gratitude's more our inner response. A sense of value is what we recognize in relationship to that. Appreciation, or to appreciate, also means and is used to describe the process whereby something increases in value. Like, you know, if your assets appreciate, it means they become more valuable. This is what happens when we appreciate, when we turn to something in this way, with this openness, with this care. The value that we recognize in it is actually enhanced, is actually supported to deepen, to begin to, to glow, we might say. And this happens in ourselves. When we appreciate and care for ourselves, when we extend loving kindness to ourselves, that which is of value, in fact, begins to grow. That which is beautiful is allowed and supported to flower and to bear fruit. And the fourth way, there may be more, but the fourth way that I came up with with regard to this word appreciate or appreciation is it also means to understand when we really understand something, truly and deeply, we value it. They go together. In, in some ways, that's the two primary meanings of the word. To appreciate is to value it, but also to understand it. And when we really understand something, we will value it inevitably. I once uh, received at the or received a gift from a student who had been here practicing the retreat on retreat for about three months, doing a lot of loving kindness meditation. Very beautiful hand 
sort of calligraphied note, I guess, but it was sort of very beautifully presented. And there was on it a few words that I'd never heard as such in that form before. And it really touched me. It said, there's no one you could not love once you've heard their story. And just really beautifully you know, said in a few words what I've just been going on about for a while. That, that whole sense of when we really hear someone's story, when we really understand how it is that someone came to be as they are, then it's not that we necessarily have to like everything about how someone turns out or how even we turn out. We don't have to like it all, but that we can actually care for it, we can love it. There's that sense of we can open our heart to it because we understand how it came to be this way. And with ourselves, most crucially, part of what happens on retreat is we begin to hear our story more. Some of what comes into the spaces around the phrases or the moments when we spin off into some memory or just as we're sitting having a cup of tea in a comfortable chair. as so we start to feel and sense our life more deeply. We start to hear some parts of our story. And only when we can really hear our story fully, it doesn't mean we become defined by it, but we start to understand it. Then we can also find our way to a an openness, an unconditional accepting and allowing of the okayness of our life. The okayness of our life and the the goodness of it, in fact. Not the perfect, it's not about perfection, but something about its wholesomeness. And I'd like to read something from a, a an Indian monk by the name of Kirpal Vananji, who spoke about this and about the habit we have of so much more focusing on self-criticism. He said, Break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, and to see the goodness that you are. There is no wrong in you or any other. There is only the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. If one comes even in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it. Just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. Beautiful words and remarkable wisdom. What would that mean for us? To really trust in that wellspring of goodness, of love, of life. 
as being very much at the core of what is most true for ourselves and in fact for all of life. This is so. And yet, it's not easy, is it, to engage in this practice. Some of you have talked in the meetings about the struggles, the challenges, the exhaustion. It's kind of funny how we get so tired, but it happens. Of course, if you were to go home and describe to your friends what you've been doing, well, we sat around and they said, you know, say a few nice things to yourself and then go for a little walk and then come back down, say a few nice things to yourself. And boy, at the end of the day, I was exhausted. I look at you and think, yeah? That sounds like a holiday. <clears throat> say a few nice things to somebody else as well, you know. And yet, there's so much momentum, it seems, towards reactivity, towards disconnection, towards distractedness. And part of what we're doing here is going against that stream, setting our course and our intentionality very clear and just, okay, this is what we're supporting. And coming back to it again and again and again, as you are. And with this, to really understand that while the quality itself is is there, is within us, nonetheless, there are many ways in which we become entangled with our experience, with our life, that we need to understand, that we need to be able to understand in order to be able to release ourselves from. And it's a process, a journey. It takes time. It's not all going to be done in a weekend. That doesn't mean that in a weekend we can't take significant steps and really recognize and feel a deep sense of of shift, of movement, of opening. But it's a it's a larger journey than this. And so we also need to look at and see what makes it difficult. We need to understand that. And a lot of what makes it difficult to keep our hearts open, to stay in touch with this warmth and this loving and this friendliness that we long for and that we recognize the importance of, the crucial importance of in this world and in our lives. What makes it hard is that often life is difficult. We're faced with the painful the scary, the challenging, at times it seems the overwhelming impact of, of life. It's not always easy to be a human being, to live the life that we live. For all the good fortune and the blessings we have to be here at all, there are equally many challenging and sometimes extremely challenging circumstances and conditions we have to deal with. Simply having a body that's subject to aging, sickness and death, it's not easy. Having a heart that is touched by feelings, both sweet and lovely but equally at times tender and painful and grievous, we could say, hard to bear. It's not an easy thing. And sometimes it seems like it's easier to close down than to feel the truth of our life. And yet, it's not. 
it's not. To lose contact with this. And it's not that we consciously, or not often that we consciously choose to close down because it's too painful to feel. It's somehow, it's what we do because we don't see any other option. And perhaps when we're very young, we don't have any other option. And it's the first thing that seems available. It's just withdraw, shut down, close down, protect ourselves. And we're trying to protect ourselves. But then we find a life where we're actually closed down, isn't it? One that's deeply satisfying, that we long for. We miss the sense of that connection, that ability to be touched. And this this is something that's right at the heart and the core of what we are. There's this recognition that's perhaps quite common for most of us, is a sense of we can recognize how we long to be loved, how we long to be held in the light of warmth, of friendliness, of appreciation, of care by others. And it's quite natural and appropriate that we wish for this. There's a remarkable story I heard about an experiment that was done with a very young baby monkey. And the, 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 the scientists were trying to see what was the most important thing for this tiny little being. And normally, when as a very little baby, it would just stay with its mother, and its mother would be the source of comfort and warmth and nourishment through the milk provided. And so they, they, they took these monkeys, or this monkey, away from its mother for a little while, and they put it in a space where at one end of the space was a soft, warm, cuddly, mother surrogate kind of thing, but no source of food. And at the other end of the space that it was in, they put some source of it, and they showed it so it knew that that was there, and then watched what it did. And the baby just hung on to its mum, or what seemed to its mum, and it seemed that if they'd left there, it would stay there and not get any food. And I don't think they took it or would need to take it to that point, but it's like what was really clear from the experiment was that actually we choose that sense of being loved over the food that keeps us alive in that circumstance. And I think, for me, I mean, I, was, I remember being very touched and also it's quite, there's something kind of raw about that. Like, ah, wow. You know, I hope they looked after that little fella afterwards. Um, you know, took him back, or her back to her mum. But the sense of how we can and relate to how deeply we long to be loved. It's such a strong pull in us, I believe. And this, I think, however, somehow covers over something deeper and even more important for us. Because when we're loved, when we feel safe and held and cared for in that way, what happens for us quite naturally and without having to think too much about it is that we find ourselves able to love in return. And... This capacity, or this enabling or allowing of our heart to open, I believe is actually what our deeper longing is for. When we long to be loved, it's because we long for the condition in which we can open our hearts. And we understand that to be the condition on which we depend. As a child, that's probably true. 
But as we grow into the fullness of our adult capacity, as we begin to explore and develop it, we can develop the capacity to keep and to support the heart to stay open. Even in the absence of those very ideal conditions of being unconditionally cared for, loved and protected and always safe and sound in that. To learn to love unconditionally, for the heart to be open in the face of all things, including that which is challenging or scary to us. The natural openness of our heart that that we long to live more fully within and in contact with. When we don't understand the way things are, when we don't have the understanding, the clarity, the wisdom of life that spiritual teachings point us towards, that caring for ourselves tends to lead to reactivity. We tend to want to push away the things that seem threatening, dangerous or scary. And we try and hold on, grasp and cling to those things that seem like they're beneficial, nourishing or uplifting in some way. And that process of pushing away and trying to cling on to creates a sense of contraction, creates a sense of suffering, that we are invited and encouraged to liberate ourselves from. So one of the things we are asked to reflect on in this practice and in these teachings is what's the real danger in our lives? Because it might seem like the real danger and at some level you know, danger might be that which is going to impinge upon me causing me unpleasant experience that I don't wish to have. And that might seem like the things we are afraid of. We think of what scares us. And noticing that when we feel scared, the heart tends to close. At a kind of more instinctual level, of course there's a place for that. You know, We need to take care of our physical survival and that of those we care for and are responsible for. We need to do that. Although we are unable always to do it perfectly, we do what we can. And yet there's a deeper taking care that's asked of us, that we're called to. And really the taking care of our heart. We put in so much effort into the process of avoiding suffering, avoiding pain. Because the effect of it, to a large extent, is to disconnect us. When we react to it, we disconnect. By trying to pull away from the experience, we actually disconnect from ourselves. We start to feel isolated and separate. And this is, this is really painful. This is a deeper suffering, that disconnection, that separation. That sense of no longer being in relationship with, being touched by and touching others around us and even parts of ourselves. So often we blame ourselves for the suffering of our lives, or we've been blamed by others by the su- for the suffering of their lives. And somehow the sense that because it hurts, it means I've done something wrong, gets quite deeply ingrained into us. But in fact, life cannot be without hurt. It's not possible. 
It's not because you've done something wrong. It's how it is. And as a simple illustration of this, in terms of where I think we can feel quite deep hurt, in terms of the emotional life, if we love something in life, someone, some circumstance, something, if we love something, at some point in our life we'll be separated from it. There's no way around that. Because things don't last forever, and if they do, we don't. There's no way around that. And in being separated from something we love, we'll feel that deeply. It's as, 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 as painful. It will hurt. Not because we did something wrong, just because that's how it is. If we don't love something in this life, that will hurt. There's no way around that. If we love, it will at times hurt. If we don't love, it will at times hurt. So, obviously, the fact that it hurts isn't because we did it wrong. It's because of how it is. And if we don't judge or blame ourselves or others for the fact that sometimes it hurts, not always, but sometimes, that's what we experience, then the recognition of that challenging and tender aspect of our lives that we could call just simply, it hurts. We see that it's shared. It's something that happens for all of us. It's not something that separates us or sets us apart from everyone else. It in fact connects us. It joins us to everyone else because we share it. And one of the most powerful and important elements of what can sometimes happen in the in the in the interview groups is that when we hear each other speak of our challenges and our struggles, we recognize we're not alone. Even though our struggle might be quite different and our pain might be quite particular, possibly even quite peculiar, but we realize that actually it's not that different. It's not that strange. It's part of life. And in that what comes quite naturally is a sense of caring for that. When the recognition of our shared suffering is open to, it connects us rather than separates us from each other. It binds us, it draws us together in a way that's rather beautiful. There's a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye that speaks to this. It's entitled Kindness. And she writes, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian, Native American, in a white poncho, lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath which kept him alive before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside. You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then 
It is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So opening to the challenging and the difficult of our lives is actually a gateway to reconnecting and a gateway to the, to the wellspring of kindness within us. So it's a challenging journey and yet one we can undertake when we understand what's most important. When we understand what's the real danger in life. And with this regard, there was a a remarkable conversation I heard of between His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who regularly goes to the uh, northern Indian town of Dharamasala, where he has his his base, and meets refugees who have escaped from occupied Tibet across the, uh, the mountains into India. And he was having a conversation with an elderly monk who'd, who'd made the arduous journey over several weeks through the high mountains and intense cold and made it through. And he said, Venerable Sir, Venerable Sir, tell me in your long and difficult journey, were you ever in danger? And the, the old monk looked at him and said, Only when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. Having faced the cold, the mountains, the border guards with guns, understanding that in the end the danger that he faced was the risk of closing his heart. Remarkable wisdom. And remarkable kindness expressed in this understanding. So seeing that that what closes our heart is the sense of judgment or anger towards others or towards ourselves for the harmful things that we have done or they have done, we have to attend to this. We have to look at this. In some ways this is the, the gatekeeper to opening our hearts. Sometimes we feel justified as if it's necessary to be angry or to hate those things that are harmful or destructive in the world. And there are many unwholesome, unskillful, tragic activities, behaviours and ways of doing things that people engage in that we see the harmfulness of. And of course it's clear and necessary and important that at times we really clearly say to those things, no, this is not acceptable, this is not okay. That we allow our voice to be heard clearly. Whether it be simply in relationship to someone who's not respecting us in the way they meet us, or whether it be with more larger issues of the world, or of our communities. Where we just say no to those things that are not acceptable. 
that are harmful, that we understand to be so. And yet with that, not needing to take that to the sense of then judging or condemning those actors or those beings or ourselves who may at times act in harmful ways. Because what we need to understand is that when we and equally anyone else acts in ways that cause harm, we do it because we're trying to protect ourselves and those that we care for or advance the well-being of ourselves and those that we care for. And the only way we can know that and the only way I can say that so confidently to you is to examine oneself. And for myself, I've reflected on this often and deeply to see those times and places where I've hurt other people. Sometimes unintentionally, occasionally intentionally. And it's hard to face that sometimes. See, yeah, I did that and I meant to. Not knowingly at the time necessarily, but recognising that there was that intention there, wish to hurt. And seeing that it comes out of one's own fear or pain and desperate wish to escape or release oneself from that. If we look at our lives carefully, I believe each of us will see the same truth, that that's how we have caused harm and why we've done it. Not because we were bad, but simply because we were blind and in pain and desperately seeking a way out, thrashing around, oblivious to other people around us, not necessarily physically, maybe verbally or emotionally, and they become impacted by it. So this process of just seeing that truth or reflecting on it if it's not apparent to you. You don't have to take my word for it. But it's how it is. It's blindness that leads to this harm. And blindness isn't something we need to judge others for or ourselves but that we need to help people see, or at least help people navigate in their blindness. There's an image, a sort of, a, I guess, a, a metaphor or simile that occurred to me once reflecting on this that I'd like to share. And so just imagine this, if you will, while I'm speaking. If you were going for a walk one day in the woods and you see a small puppy and having some liking and appreciation of small creatures, reach out to stroke it. Imagine it bites your hand as you reach out to stroke it. What's your response? It's like, you, you know, bad, stupid, possibly slightly stronger language might come to mind. One might even imagine one's arm, the one that wasn't getting bitten, you know, I'll teach you not to bite, that kind of response. And just imagine as you're having that, "Mm, you're bad and I'm going to sort you out, you see that its foot is caught in one of those traps with spring-loaded jaws. What happens in that moment? There was that, it's hurting me, it's bad, I'm going to sort it out. And then it's like, wow, it's suffering, it's in pain. That's why it's bitten me. And then actually, yeah, sure, we want to look up, we don't want it to bite our hand, we make sure our hand's okay. But maybe we're actually more going to be concerned with releasing it from the trap than teaching it a lesson. That would seem to be relatively obvious how I think most of us would respond. We'd be maybe upset with whoever left the trap there. But the puppy? 
Not at all at fault here. And why is that? Because we kind of understand that you know, it's only doing this because it's in pain and fear and desperately wanting to get out of that suffering that it's in and tragically attacking the person who could help it. It's a cry for help, essentially. So there's a scenario. And then imagine some months later, maybe years, you've forgotten all about the last story and you're walking through the woods and it's autumn and you see a puppy. And you think, oh, puppies, are like puppies. You reach out to stroke it and it bites your hand. Imagine as you look at the puppy that it's up to its shoulders and fallen leaves. So you can't see its feet or its legs. What would it be for you to know that its foot was in a trap? Without being able to see if that was so. What would it be to know that? Because what it seems to me is that to know that would be to know that it is not of the nature of puppies to want to cause harm or to bite or to attack in that way. It's not of their nature. It only happens because they're in pain or afraid. And so even if I can't see the trap, I realise, ah, that's what's happening. To be able to see in that way is to be able to begin to forgive even when we can't understand why someone has done what they have done. Or why we have done what we have done. But to know that, oh, it was our suffering, or their suffering that led to this. And then the wish is really to transform that. Rather than judging or blaming the natural response. It's not something we have to do at that point. It's like, oh, I want to help this creature. It doesn't mean we just let them chew in our hand. Because that's not going to help them. Maybe we even have to say, no, don't bite me. That's allowed. It's allowed to say no, I mean. It's not biting is allowed. But that sense of, okay, and now how can I help here? When we understand that this is the nature of things, ourselves and others, that love is in fact very much at the core of what is true, of us and in us, then where we see that it's been lost or blocked or distorted into anger and hatred, whether in our own hearts or in another, we wish to care and support the transformation of that. It's natural, it's what we would wish to do. It's nothing particularly noble or remarkable, it's organic in a way, although it's also relatively Rare, so in that regard, quite special. So there's a story with regard to that that I'd like to share. How how are you doing sitting here? Has it been too long already? If you need to change your posture, it's okay. The story concerns a uh, a young boy who was on trial in Los Angeles, having aged about 13, 14 years old, having shot another 13, 14-year-old boy who he'd never met before and killed him. And it was the, uh, the task he'd been given to do by the local gang he was trying to join 
having lived on the streets for some time in quite a difficult and deprived neighbourhood, no real family or support around him, he'd fulfilled this task. And the mother of the boy he'd killed was in the courtroom when he was tried. And at the end of it, he was found guilty and sentenced to a significant period in a juvenile institution to be incarcerated. And when the sentence was passed, the mother of the boy he'd killed looked at him straight in the eyes and said, I'm going to kill you, and left the courtroom. And he was taken away and locked up and... After a little while, the mother of the boy he'd killed wrote him a letter, just asking how he was. It was the only letter he'd received at that point, several weeks in. And she wrote another, and after a while said, I'd like to come and visit you. And then she did. And she regularly came to visit him through the term of his his imprisonment. And at the end of it, in speaking with him, and realising he had no family or friends to speak of, she helped him look for a job and arranged a place he could work through someone she knew. And then she said to him, you know, I've got a spare room in my house. If you haven't got anywhere to stay, you could come and stay here when you come out. And he, rather surprised, said, yeah, sure, thank you. And when he arrived there, after he'd come out of prison, she sat him down and said, you know, do you remember what I said to you in the courtroom? He said, yeah. And she said, you know, I meant it. I did not want that hateful and disconnected, aggressive part of you that could kill my boy, my precious only son, not even knowing him. I did not want that to survive. And you know, I believe I've done what I needed to do there. I don't believe that is alive in you anymore. But what is alive, I actually quite like. And you know, I don't have... I've got a spare room in my house. I don't have a son anymore. But I'd like you to live with me. And if it works out, I'd like to adopt you to be my son. He said yes. Remarkable story seems to me. The the wisdom and the love and the courage in that to see that that which killed her son, she wanted to bring that to an end. But it wasn't the young boy. It was his alienation, his fear, his disconnection and his lack of anyone who cared for him and supported him. And by ending that, she found what she also was looking for, I imagine. So this, in some ways, is what we're engaged in. This practice asks us to love even that which might seem, on a surface, not entirely lovable, if impossible, to open to. We start where it's more accessible. We don't ask ourselves to turn to the most difficult place to begin with. But ultimately, in ourselves and in others and the world, we are asked to open our heart to embrace it all. And this we can do. This is possible for us. This 
pathway of, of love and kindness is one in which we come to see that we are not separate from anything else. And that in not being separate from, not being apart from other things, there's a natural resonance and connection that's there that is more true and more real than the apparent divisions and distinctions that set us apart or place us in opposition to each other. The very nature of love is that it doesn't see something other. It sees what it sees or what it shines upon. It's not other than itself. And that's what it recognises when it looks into the world. Even though heavily disguised, often, it sees itself through the disguise. And so, there's this natural caring that's there that we learn to release, to nourish, to support in a simple, gentle, patient way, not all at once, not necessarily in grand gestures or statements, but just so far as we can, with words of kindness and care, and actions equally too in our lives that express those same care and qualities. And through this we can come to understand not only the boundlessness of love and of loving kindness, but equally the unboundness of life. When there are no boundaries between ourselves and others, love is boundless and life is unbound. And for the Realization and discovery of this, we practice. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, in our practice and through our lives, deepen in our understanding and capacity 
to embrace our lives and experience. May we deepen in forgiveness and friendliness towards ourselves and others. And may we live with loving kindness, with a heart unbound. with love unbounded for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.